This is Guns and Butter. was in Baghdad, it was like the hope. It was the hope of the Arab world. It had oil wealth. It distributed funds to its people. I remember walking in its squares and there were these fantastic art projects. Not so many people were wearing, uh, you know, burqa, the veil, whatever. And then this all changed. It all changed in the 80s and 90s. And one of the reasons that you have so much jihadism is because the secular nationalist movements were destroyed by the CIA and other forces. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Charlotte Dennett. Today's show, Follow the Pipelines, the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Charlotte Dennett is a former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, author, and attorney. She is co-author with her husband, Gerard Colby, of Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. Charlotte Dennett's new book, The Crash of Flight 3804, A Lost Spy, A Daughter's Quest, and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, chronicles her investigation into the mystery surrounding her father's death in a plane crash in Ethiopia in 1947 on his return from a secret mission to Saudi Arabia for the Central Intelligence Group, and is the subject of today's program. Charlotte Dennett, welcome. Hey, Bonnie, great to be talking with you. Your new book, The Crash of Flight 3804, is your investigation into the mystery surrounding the crash of a C-47 military transport plane that crashed into the side of a mountain in Ethiopia in 1947, killing all on board. Your father, Daniel Dennett, was on that plane along with a U.S. petroleum attache and four other enlisted men. It seems that your father had been on a secret mission to Saudi Arabia. Who was your father? Well, at the time of the plane crash, my father was um, the top American master spy in the Middle East. Not only the top, the only one. And uh, he had been recruited originally into the OSS, which was the wartime new American intelligence service. That later morphed into the Central Intelligence Group. And he was with the Central Intelligence Group when the plane went down. Uh, The CIA was not formed until a few months later. That's another story, but he would be eventually recognized by the CIA as their first fallen star with a star put on their memorial wall in Langley at the headquarters of the CIA. But at any rate, he was an Islamic scholar, and that was one of the reasons he got plucked out of uh, academia to serve uh, in the Middle East, because he had written extensively about the Middle East. He could speak fluent Arabic, uh, and he was very sympathetic to the peoples of the region because he had taught the sons, mostly sons, of uh, Middle Eastern leaders at the American University of Beirut in the 30s. 
that was, you know, a decade prior to his serving with the OSS and the CIG. His code name was Carrot, like the gem, C-A-R-A-T. And that, frankly, distinguished him from all the other officers who had names like Monkey and Squirrel and Pony. He was highly prized because he not only had knowledge of the Islamic world, but also his undergraduate work at Harvard had been in uh, European studies with a specialty in German. So that gives you a nutshell who he was. What was disconcerting about his last letter and report home to your mother in Beirut as opposed to his obituary? When I started investigating his death, and that would be around 1975, um, I had I had discovered some reports in a in a trunk that was in the the family attic, and these were reports written home and letters to my mother, and it was clear to me from his last report and his last letter that he was on a very sensitive mission to determine the route of the Trans Arabian pipeline. Uh, which was going to carry Saudi oil wealth to Europe. And this was a very big deal. I did more digging. I looked into New York Times and so on. But the obituary uh, just said that he he was on a vacation junket to Ethiopia. It didn't mention Saudi Arabia. It didn't mention that he was on a top-secret mission. And, uh, and they just held out that the plane probably crashed because of bad weather. So right then I knew that there was information that was being left out on purpose and that heightened my concern that maybe this plane crash was not an accident as was suggested in the obituary but because of the incredible competition that was going on for oil at that time between the U.S and all its major wartime allies, the French and the Soviets. They were all spying against each other and they were all intriguing against each other. So right from the get-go, I thought this is really worth exploring, having access to records that the government didn't know I had access, namely these valuable reports that had been put in a, a steamer trunk in the attic. What important cargo was on board this crashed military transport plane? There was top-secret radio communications equipment, and it would take me a long time to figure out that angle, but I think I finally have. Uh, At the time the plane crashed in Ethiopia, uh, the U.S. was coming on strong in Ethiopia because they had landed an exclusive oil concession with Halle Selassie, who was the uh, head of of Ethiopia, the ruler. And this was a cause of huge consternation to the British, who had complete control over uh, everything in Ethiopia, communications, railroads, land travel. They had it locked up. Halle Selassie wanted it opened up and so had turned to the Americans. And one of the things that was going to open it up was the establishment of an Ethiopian Airlines that would be government-owned but would be run, uh, managed initially by the TWA. 
So that communications equipment was going to serve as um, a way to uh, circumvent British controls over communications in all of Ethiopia. So then with regard to the political situation in Ethiopia in 1947, it sounds like it was very uh, volatile with the British there uh, sort of transitioning into an American takeover. What is the important connection between pipeline routes and airline routes? I had never thought of this connection before reading it in your book. Well, in fact, it took me the longest time to suddenly realize that airplane routes were almost, if not as important as pipeline routes, I say in the East. So with regard to Ethiopia, well, I, I should backtrack and say that I sued the CIA under FOIA to get more documents. And one of the documents that they turned over was a gem. It was eight single space pages of an analysis of work that my father had written prior to his being posted over to Lebanon uh, for the OSS. And in that report, something had escaped the redactor's black pen. And that was, first of all, a statement by my father that said the oil of Saudi Arabia, that had been blacked out, but I knew it was that, is so important, so vital to our interests that it must be controlled at all costs. But the other uh, interesting paragraph that fell below that on oil was air rights. And he said also we must protect them at all costs because this was a time when civilian airplanes were going to be traveling all over the world, a huge advance in commerce carrying oil supplies, carrying intelligence, using uh, aerial cameras to be able to determine the topography of the land below, especially if they're looking for oil. So that was the link. And in, in this case, they were equally important. They were also, when he flew to Ethiopia, Sinclair was looking to explore for oil in what's called the Ogaden Peninsula, part of Ethiopia. And their ground crews had been block, blockaded at every corner, it seemed, by British military personnel. So by allowing an airplane, such as Ethiopian Airlines, to conduct uh, topographical studies from afar, from up in the sky, they could still try to determine where the oil was going to be most plentifully achieved. And also, they would be able to determine pipeline routes. And the whole point about pipelines is this. There's a lot of oil in the world, but it's useless unless it gets distributed. And so, at my father's time, the distribution of choice had been through pipelines. Get it out of the ground and ship it off to, in this case, Europe, or it could be to Asia or whatever. You write that Daniel Dennett was tasked to chart the course of a trans-Arabian oil pipeline from Saudi Arabia to the eastern Mediterranean to either Palestine or Lebanon for shipment to Europe for Aramco, the Arabian-American oil company. What made this trans-Arabian pipeline assignment 
so dangerous? Well, it's multi-layered. Um, the more I dug into the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, the more I realized it was fraught with controversy. Well, first of all, the pipeline route. Imagine uh, discovering that its terminal point was either going to be in Palestine or Lebanon. I mean, Palestine at this time, not yet Israel, becomes Israel in 1948. Uh, There's a lot of civil unrest going on at the time. The, the Jews in Palestine were fighting the British, and they were fighting the Arabs. And uh, the British was doing everything it could to control Palestine. Um, there are indications that the Americans were trying to nudge in. And then there's the issue of uh, Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, the ruler. He did not want the pipeline to terminate in Palestine because uh, the Truman administration had just issued an order that would have allowed 100,000 uh, Jewish refugees in, in displaced persons camps in Europe to emigrate to Palestine. Ibn Saud didn't want that. Um, I mean, the whole struggle for Palestine goes back several decades before then. And uh, the Arabs had been promised their independence in former Ottoman Empire territories in the Middle East if they helped the British fight the Turks. And then what happened is the British uh, betrayed their promises and took over all of that area of Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq. That became the British mandate after World War One, And the French controlled Lebanon. That was part of the French mandate created after World War One through the League of Nations. And so there was a there was a lot of hostility and suspicion about big power plays in the region. The thing is, at this time, 47, uh, most of the Arab world was hoping that the U.S. would be a a good ally. They they were assured that the U.S. had no designs, no colonial designs on their territory. And after all, the, the Americans had defeated the British in the American Revolution. So there was still some goodwill in that part of the world. But uh, as soon as Truman uh, started to favor a Jewish homeland in Palestine, uh, Ibn Saud said, I will not allow that. Uh, if you want your oil, then you're going to have to use a different route, but it cannot terminate in Haifa, Palestine, which is where there was already a, a different pipeline that terminated there. It's called the Iraq Petroleum Company pipeline, which had been built in the 30s. And uh, the British controlled that one. So my father, who was stationed in Lebanon, had figured that really Lebanon would be more suitable for the terminal point of the pipeline because there was still strong uh, pro-American feeling. One of the reasons was because the American University of Beirut was located there, and that has been described as the second most important American asset in the Middle East is AUB, where the children of uh, the elites throughout the Arab world would come to get a secular education. So that is, um, that's part of the intrigue. I'm speaking with former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, and author Charlotte Dennett. Today's show, 
Follow the Pipelines, the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And also, I found an article in the New York Times, March 2nd, 1947. It's a fantastic article because it shows a map showing the pipeline route and then an accompanying article that goes into all the intrigues among the big powers. Uh, the British resented American coming on strong. The French thought that the British and the Americans were trying to kick them out of Lebanon. The Soviets uh, looked very alarmed about this pipeline because they thought it was going to have huge military bases set up to protect it. The other important thing about the pipeline is that by uh, delivering Saudi oil to Europe, a devastated Europe, it was going to be crucial to the success of the Marshall Plan. So for all these reasons, that's when I actually developed what I call pipeline consciousness. I really understood it then, reading all these different sources, and I came to apply some of my knowledge to subsequent uh, great game power plays that happened after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, and that would have meant uh, the different powers competing to control the vast oil and gas riches in the Caspian Sea. And that would lead to Afghanistan and eventually Iraq. Your father described Aramco as a new version of the East India Company. Do you know what he meant by that? Yeah, and um, good for you to pick that up. <laughs> to I mean, there's so many different layers in this book, but that's very important because... When he went on this secret mission to Saudi Arabia, he learned that um, that the British uh, East Indian Company, it was a major colonial outpost for the British throughout that part of the world. And he was also alarmed to find out that the king tended to deal more with uh, Aramco like a new colonial East India Company than with uh, members of the U.S. government. He was very disturbed by that. And so what you find there is really the beginnings of um, corporate interference in setting the agenda for the U.S. government and, frankly, the American people. And he, he discerned it. He said, I wouldn't feel comfortable living in Saudi Arabia under such circumstances, where the king gets everything from the oil company and ignores the government. Your book covers the intrigue and treachery of Middle East oil pipeline politics throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, beginning all the way back to pre-World War I railway politics, which were the precursor to pipeline politics. What about the Berlin to Baghdad Railway, constructed by the Germans and Turks from 1903 to 1915, from Berlin to Turkey to Iraq and Iran? Was this project ever completed? No, it wasn't completed because the Germans and the Turks were defeated in World War One. But one thing that I discovered was that this railroad, the Berlin to Baghdad Railway, was actually a cause of World War One. Uh, this is all documented in the book. The way I discovered that is that um, 
I was researching my grandmother, who was a missionary educator uh, to Constantinople in 1900. It was then called that. Now it's Istanbul. So when I went into the archives of the American College of Girls, where she taught in Constantinople, I, uh, I discovered this book in the library, and it was called The Berlin to Baghdad Railway. And I thought, what the heck is that doing in a missionary library? And then when I started to read it, it all began to make sense. Yeah, in the 19th century, it was railroads that were carrying the commerce around the world. And so railroad routes were hotly disputed. And what happened in the lead up to World War One is that the Germans had convinced the Turks that if they would allow the Germans to build this railroad from Berlin across Turkey into Iraq, and they wanted it to go to Iran, it never got that far. But they had convinced the Turks that this would help the Turks unify all of Anatolia, part of the Turkish Empire. And meanwhile, if the Turks, in return, would offer, guess what, oil concessions on either side of the railroad. So that was what it was all about. And the whole question of Serbia was the one area of contention for the Germans to run that, um, and the British for that matter, uh, to run the uh, the railroad through all the way to Iraq. The, the British in particular felt extremely threatened by this German eastward rush. The British knew they were after oil. Oil at this time had become highly prized because Churchill had determined in 1911 um, when he was then Lord of the Admiralty, namely the head of the British Navy, that it was going to have to convert its uh, fuel from coal, of which Britain had lots of, to oil, which it had nothing of. And even Churchill admitted that in order to fuel the Navy with oil, he would have to, Britain would have to fight on a sea of troubles. And the first place that they stake out is Iraq. They knew there was oil there. If they could get control of Iraqi oil, then the British Navy would be in good shape. And so World War One, the great prize it was determined to be a first-class war aim was to get control of the oil of Iraq, which it did. The Brits did do that. But anyway, they therefore were very alarmed by the Germans trying to nose in, creating this railroad that would go not only through Iraq, but towards Iran. And as I said, they were defeated uh, in 1915. It was the Brits that got the oil, not the Germans and the Turks. After the crimes of September 11, 2001, there were voluminous discussions about a proposed Unical oil pipeline that was to traverse Afghanistan from the Caspian Sea, Turkmenistan, and deliver oil to Pakistan and India. We all remember the negotiations with the Taliban over this and the ensuing U.S. invasion. To my knowledge, this TAPI pipeline, that is Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India was never built, but that there are U.S. military bases along the route. Where does this stand today, and what happened? Well, um, 
part of it has been built. Uh, the part that goes through Turkmenistan, the part that, that is to go through Afghanistan has still not been built because there's all this conflict going on. And what I show in the book is that originally uh, when Unical was looking for gaining concessions for oil and gas in the Caspian Sea, that's a landlocked region so that there had to be pipeline built that would get the oil and gas out and onto markets in India and Asia, and also uh, to supply an Enron plant in uh, India. So the Taliban, um, this is before 9-11, were heavily courted. They, they even took trips down to uh, Houston, Texas. And they were courted because Afghanistan has so many different warring tribes. And you can't run a pipeline unless you got stability. And you need stability uh, through military protection. And in those early days, it was figured that uh, the Taliban were the best suited. They were the, the, the best warriors to do that. And then up to 1997, the Taliban had even been able to get control of uh, Afghanistan's capital uh, in Kabul. But then uh, right, right after 9-11, uh, the U.S. relations with the Taliban soured because the U.S. demanded that the Taliban turn over Osama bin Laden, who was then in Afghanistan. And the Taliban said, not unless you prove that he was behind uh, 9-11. And the U.S. did not offer any proof. And so instead of the Taliban being our allies, suddenly they were our enemies. And uh, shortly after 9-11, uh, Bush orders uh, American soldiers to invade Afghanistan. And then it is to defeat the Taliban and to set up military bases along the projected route of the TAPI pipeline. And I have a map in the book that shows exactly where those military bases are. So there's a pipeline connection to the war in Afghanistan. What about the connection between big banks and big oil? You write about this in your book. You write that one of the American hostages in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, this would be 1979-1980, wrote his wife saying, quote, Watch out for Rockefeller, Kissinger, and Helms. Now, Kissinger and Rockefeller convinced President Carter, against the advice he was getting from the State Department, to allow the overthrown Shah of Iran to enter the U.S. for medical treatment. What effect did allowing the Shah into the U.S. have? Well, it was a direct provocation. The embassy folks in Tehran had warned the State Department in the U.S., don't let the Shah into the U.S., otherwise the embassy is going to be seized. And uh, the U.S., namely David Rockefeller, ignored that, ignored that request, admitted the Shah because he was a very close ally, and uh, lo and behold, the embassy was seized. So then, as this uh, hostage crisis drags out, I think 444 days, um, some of the hostage families started to get suspicious. First of all, 
They wanted answers and they weren't getting them. The State Department had set up this group called the Family Liaison Action Group, FLAG for short, uh, whose sole purpose was to make sure that the hostage family stayed in line and didn't start questioning. And they were told that if you start raising questions, then that will hurt our efforts to rescue your loved ones. So my being the daughter of a diplomat spy, I was kind of curious as to how they were uh, thinking about this hostage crisis. And there was one family in, in particular, the Graves family, who indeed were wondering, particularly after they received from uh, the, the father, uh, who was an embassy official, a warning, watch out for Kissinger and Rockefeller and Helms. Helms had been the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Iran. And uh, so I did more exploration. Uh, there's a story about that in The Nation called Suffering in Silence that I wrote during the hostage crisis. And it would seem that it was a setup that um, by, by uh, the hostage taking, the next step, by the Carter administration was uh, to freeze all of Iran's assets in Chase Manhattan Bank in its European branches, particularly London. Because after the overthrow of the Shah, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini had started withdrawing funds from that bank. So the hostage crisis gave the pretext, the excuse, for seizing Iran's oil money and uh, that was $8 billion worth. And interestingly enough, during the uh, modern uh, Iran nuclear deal, uh, half of that money was returned to Iran. Mind you, it was their money to begin with, and certain uh, neoconservative Trump forces claiming that uh, that was a terrible deal because uh, the U.S. was giving money, $4 billion, to the Iranians. Well, it was their money. Anyway, that's that story. I'm speaking with former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, and author Charlotte Dennett. Today's show, Follow the Pipelines, the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, yes, and that obviously shows why Kissinger and Rockefeller would be uh, so interested in having that money frozen, that Iranian money frozen, because it was in the Chase Manhattan Bank, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, in the Chase Bank. Yes, that's it. All the Chase uh, branches in Europe had, had Iranian petrodollars deposited in them. So this has all been proven since. I mean, it was at the time I wrote my story, too, but even more has come out since then. Now, with regard to the frozen Iranian funds that were frozen in the Chase Manhattan banks during the uh, Iranian hostage crisis, and then, of course, you mentioned that half of that money was released during the Iran nuclear deal, does the Chase Manhattan Bank still have some Iranian funds deposited there? Really great question, and uh, I can only assume that it, that, that it does. I mean, they probably wouldn't have 
put them elsewhere. And frankly, David Rockefeller was directly involved in these negotiations uh, with the Iranians on their nuclear deal. So although I did not uh, look into that, I think it's a good probability that the money is still in chase. Could you talk about how secular Arab nationalism was crushed in many Arab countries, and according to your book, quote, big powers used different jihadist groups to inflict horrific damage on resource-rich yet highly vulnerable people? Uh, certainly, as we all know, that jihadists were used uh, by the CIA to force the Soviet Union to withdraw from Afghanistan. So there is one example of where the CIA was supporting uh, fundamentalists. And the person who was very much behind that was the big new Brzezinski, who was the right-hand man of David Rockefeller, uh, about nationalism. Um, it was still strong when I was in Beirut in 1973 to 75. I wrote for the uh, English language Daily Star and for another magazine called the Middle East Sketch. And uh, yeah, and, uh, nationalism was very strong at that time, secular. And I, I'll never forget uh, visiting Iraq. Uh, I was going to investigate the situation of the Kurds uh, who were rebelling against the Iraqis in the mountains that are in eastern Iraq bordering on Iran. And... Um, Actually, the uh, Iraqis were granting aut autonomy to the Kurds. They could have their own language, and, and that was very important to them. But uh, ultimately, well, we know what's happened in Iraq. Um, what I meant to mention first is that when I was in Baghdad, it was like the hope. It was the hope of the Arab world. It had oil wealth. It uh, distributed funds uh, to its people. I remember walking in its squares, and there were these fantastic art projects. Not so many people were wearing, uh, you know, burqa, the veil, whatever. And then this all changed. It all changed in the 80s and 90s. And one of the reasons that you have so much jihadism is because the secular nationalists movements were destroyed by the CIA and other forces. And so the only outlet that frustrated people had were these Islamist, supranationalist, fundamentalist group, which is a great tragedy. In your subchapter, The Pipeline Factor in the Yemeni War, you write that the war started in 2014 when Shia rebels from the country's north, the Houthis, gained control over the nation's capital in Asana and deposed the Saudi-backed ruler. The ousted leader fled to Saudi Arabia. In response, a Saudi-led Arab coalition began bombing Yemen in 2015 in order to restore the exiled government to power. You write that geography and a map of the Arabian Peninsula tells the rest of the story. How does geography play such a big part in the war in Yemen? Well, I have a map 
the map shows the Saudi Peninsula and Yemen occupies the whole southern part of the Saudi Peninsula. Um, but it's one of, I would say, one of the great ironies of geopolitics is that uh, for oil tankers to carry Saudi oil from its main headquarters in, in eastern Saudi Arabia, the tankers have to travel through the Persian Gulf and they have to go through a choke point called the Strait of Hormuz. And it's this very narrow area. And on the other side of the Saudi Peninsula, there's the Bab al-Mandab Strait, which is another tiny little choke point. And with the Houthis, uh, who are Yemenis, gaining control over Sana'a and then starting to move south towards some of the oil fields that exist in Yemen, the Saudis became very alarmed. So that's when they sent Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman over to the U.S. to start negotiating huge arms deals, up to $100 billion worth. And it was to protect Saudi oil interests and a pipeline, yet another pipeline that would extend from Saudi Aramco's main headquarters uh, straight down through Yemen to a port called Mukalla. That, in their estimation, will save the unrestricted transfer of Saudi oil, which might otherwise be blocked by the Iranians, who are on the opposite end of the Gulf. And it would also, hopefully they thought, prevent the attacks on oil tankers in the Red Sea, which is on the western side of the Saudi Peninsula. So once again, you're seeing a horrendous, quote unquote, civil war. They're always called civil wars. But what, what they're really about is oil majors using their proxies to safeguard the flow of oil. So that's a map worth looking at. Right. Now, this pipeline, this Saudi pipeline that you referred to is called the Trans-Yemen Pipeline, right? Yeah, because it crosses Yemen. And by the way, the Yemeni people aren't thrilled about it. There have been protests along the pipeline route. There have been uh, some sabotaging of the pipeline. And so uh, when I had finished writing the book, it had not progressed through the heart yet of Yemen. And once again, it's too much instability. There's all this fighting. But meanwhile, Yemen has been turned into the world's greatest uh, humanitarian crisis. I think up to 100,000 people have been killed since 2015 and terrible starvation. So it's a nightmare. But the whole area is a tinderbox. And then the other thing is that there's huge oil and gas finds off the eastern Mediterranean, namely that's bordered by Israel, Lebanon, and Syria, and Turkey. And uh, so there's like this free-for-all effort to grab as much of those great finds off the coast in the Mediterranean. I point out in the book that the horrific Israeli attacks on Gaza in 2009 and 2014 were all about trying to keep those riches away from the Gazans under the pretext that it would support terrorism. And yet when the oil and gas was first discovered and when Arafat was, was still alive said that 
this was the great hope of the Palestinian people is that they could uh, control their own economy through these oil and gas riches off the coast of the Mediterranean. But the Israeli government is determined not to let that happen. Meanwhile, the campaigns that have been fought are uh, highly racist. And the, the defense minister, Yalon, proclaimed the Palestinian to be a cancer on the Israeli state. And later he called it, guess what, a virus. I mean, it's so horrifically racist, these attacks on the Gazan people, and their situation is made even worse now with coronavirus. It looks like there is oil in the Golan Heights, and as you mentioned, natural gas off the coasts of Gaza and Lebanon. What can you tell us about Genie Oil and its board of directors? Uh, Genie Oil has a, a strategic advisory board on it, and some of the people on that are former vice president and Halliburton CEO Dick Cheney, News Corps uh, CEO Rupert Murdoch, former CIA director James Woolsey, and financer Jacob Rothschild, who is chair of the J. Rothschild Group of Companies. And so um, this is a... Israeli company, I believe, but it's got all these prominent uh, Americans on board. So here's another example of an occupied territory now being exploited for oil. They think there's a lot of oil there. And as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, we should be looking at oil exploration in the West Bank. All this business about uh, Annex, annex the West Bank. And uh, there was a recent interview that showed that Palestinians, oh, it was Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, uh, the Palestinians were asked what they think about the annexation of the West Bank. And it's a very interesting response. But they basically are saying, look, whether it's annexation or occupation, we don't see that changing our lives that much. And then one person said, yeah, why would they even bother doing it? They already occupy it. But I'm saying, I will bet you anything that, that one of the oil fields right bordering the West Bank is currently being explored, and uh, that's by an Israeli company. Whenever these conflicts happen, I mean, sometimes all you have to do is Google, you know, Google oil and a country that's going through tremendous um, violence and wars, and you'll find the oil connection, at least in that part of the world. I'm speaking with former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, and author Charlotte Dennett. Today's show... Follow the pipelines, the deadly politics of the great game for oil. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Charlotte, getting back to your father and his untimely death, you researched your father's OSS records covering Saudi Arabia, Palestine, and a world of intrigue and assassinations. What did you discover about double agent Kim Philby's machinations in the Middle East 
in the time of FDR and Truman. This would have been in the late uh, 1940s, the decade the plane that was carrying your father plowed into a mountain in Ethiopia. You write that, quote, Kim got involved in Palestine during the summer of 1946, just weeks before the sensational bombing of the British military headquarters at the King David Hotel and subsequent bomb attacks against the British and American legations in Beirut, which is where your father had an office. Now, in a part of your book, you mentioned that British secret agent Kim Philby actually trained James Jesus Angleton of a CIA counterintelligence and also your father. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. He was the he was the person that was training all these these young OSS recruits, uh, and he was training them outside of London. And at the very time that he was doing this, ostensibly as a British highly placed intelligence figure, he was secretly working for the for the Russians. First of all, I learned through reading one of the books, great books on the Philbys called Treason and the Blood. Um, Kim Philby was the son of the British advisor to King Ibn Saud. And when the Russians recruited him, he, he was thought of being such a great prize that his nickname was Little Son. I mean, here's a guy who has access to everything that's going on in Saudi Arabia. And I learned from that book that Kim had made a trip to Saudi Arabia in January 1947. This was two months before my father went there. And his father was still an advisor to Ibn Saud and was was informing Kim that uh, the Americans were racking up everything. You know, they'd gotten the oil of Saudi Arabia. They were building military bases. So uh, when Kim went down there in January, he traveled with his father to uh, the near Medina on the western part of the Saudi Peninsula to a British military base called Taif, which is sort of a resort in the mountains right above uh, Mecca and Medina. And two months later, my father was traveling that same route. And uh, so I can surmise that uh, he, he actually visited with British officers in Taif. They must have known about what the U.S. was up to. And then the other thing I, I recently learned, and this was because of recently declassified papers in the British archives, uh, Kim Philby, before he was even posted to Turkey, which would be in early 1947, before that trip to Saudi Arabia, he was nonetheless uh, meddling in Palestine and Lebanon. And so the story goes that he informed the two top British intelligence officials in Palestine that there was going to be some kind of an attack on British interests in Lebanon. And as a result of this tip-off, and we have uh, the document now, these two British uh, intelligence 
people left Palestine to go to go to Lebanon to see what was going to happen and try to prevent it. And it was while they went to Lebanon that the King David Hotel was bombed. Uh, that housed British military. It was the British military headquarters. And it was, uh, I believe it was the Ergun part of the Jewish paramilitary groups that were found to be responsible. It was the biggest act of terrorism, certainly up to that time. And several writers have said uh, that these two Brits uh, figure that Philby had um, sort of uh, given them a false lead to get them out of Palestine uh, so that the uh, King David could be bombed. But what other people, other writers do not realize is that there actually was a bombing attack in uh, Lebanon uh, several weeks after the King David Hotel. Uh, the British embassy, to a lesser extent, and the American embassy. As far as I know, this is the first major bombing of an American embassy in the Middle East. And that's where my father's office was stationed, and it was partly damaged. And he wrote voluminous reports about this. Now, the fact that super British spy Kim Philby actually caused a couple of uh, high British officials to leave Palestine for Lebanon at the time that the King David Hotel in Palestine was bombed by the Irgun. That's still suspicious, uh, don't you think? Well, yeah. I, another reason it, it's suspicious is because my father had no information about this. No British uh, intelligence people, his, his opposites, as far as I can see, uh, were telling him, A, about this Philby tip-off. Um, one thing in his reporting that, that came to him from the U.S. was that uh, the British were really not cooperating very much in the bombing of the Lebanon uh, embassy. And that was odd to him. But what's also odd to me, since I have had access to almost all of his, um, his reports, they're in the National Archives, and I, I could not see him communicating with the British. Now, mind you, um, I have a working hypothesis. This is circumstantial evidence. And by the way, you're trying to prove uh, who killed some higher up through plane crashes. It's very difficult. There are many unsolved plane crashes to this day. But uh, one of my theories is that the British were primarily the, the lead uh, suspects in the downing of Flight 3804, and that Kim Philby might be the person who was able to arrange it because it would have satisfied the British and it would have satisfied the Russians, both of whom, both countries, very alarmed about the rise of American power in the Middle East. Now, Charlotte, your research for your book into British super spy Kim Philby also turned up uh, that Philby had a special connection to Zionism. Isn't that correct? 
Yeah, in in his early days, when he was first recruited by the Soviets, um, his first wife uh, was Jewish and a refugee. So through her, he became very much aware of Zionism. She was a Zionist, and so he was very sympathetic. And they got married, I believe it was in the 30s, but uh, they maintained a close contact. He had to uh, divorce her because um, her ties to uh, Zionism could prove um, problematic for him. So, uh, But they remained very good friends. And they, they had been married by uh, Mayor Teddy Kollek, who was uh, the mayor of Jerusalem and a very popular figure. So there is that, that connection there. Now, also regarding the death of your father, Daniel Dennett, quote, he was killed by one of his own, unquote. A quote related by the daughter of one of your father's closest Lebanese friends. Who was your father's close Lebanese friend? Najib Alamadin. Uh, Najib was a, a fellow um, instructor at the American University of Beirut when they were both teaching there in the 30s. They became very close. They used to stay up all night playing bridge and talking politics. So when my father came back to Beirut in the 40s in his intelligence mission, they remained very close, and Alabandine was a very important source for my father. He was a Druze um, prince, basically, a sheikh, Sheikh Alamadine. So when I talked to his daughter, who now lives in California, I said, how did your father react to the killing of my father? And she said he would get extremely upset any time it came up. And that's when he said he was killed by one of his own. So, boy, <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, was one of his own, meaning Anglo-Saxon, namely British or Americans? And that part I have not solved, but it sticks in my head. And, you know... Having written this book, I am hoping that it'll reach some people who have memories of that time or whose parents or grandparents left behind letters uh, so I could get more clues. But we'll see what happens. Charlotte, toward the end of your book, The Crash of Flight 3804, you note that your father, who had many close Arab friends, was politically opposed to the partition of Palestine. Do you think that your father's politics may have played a part in his demise? Well, you know, the funny thing is, some people have told me that's obvious. It's almost the most obvious answer. And um, I do know in reading some recent books that have come out, about uh, the struggle of Jewish uh, paramilitary organizations to wrest Palestine from the British, they were uh, they were carrying out major assassinations. 
against British colonial figures. I think they even targeted the Britain's foreign minister. So, you know, that that's another possibility. And, and they were getting money from the U.S. as well. Uh, my father did not think that the partitioning of Palestine was a good idea, that it was going to cause endless conflict. And, of course, there are many uh, that shared that belief and were later castigated for being, uh, I say later in the 50s, 60s, 70s, as being anti-Semitic. And, you know, any criticism of Israel would be equated with anti-Semitism. Fortunately, that is finally changing. And uh, I have explored that issue. And I, I think that uh, it was just from a geopolitical point of view that his concerns have been borne out. The Middle East conflict just continues to this day. And what I'm hoping to do with this book is try to break through some of the, uh, the, the propaganda and show that oil has hurt all sides, Arabs, Jews, Kurds, Armenians, you name it. Charlotte Dennett, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's been a real pleasure, and you asked really good questions. I've been speaking with Charlotte Dennett. Today's show has been Follow the Pipelines, the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Charlotte Dennett is a former Middle East reporter, investigative journalist, author, and attorney. She is co-author with her husband, Gerard Colby, of Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil, originally suppressed, but now available as an ebook on Amazon.com and other venues. She is the author of The People vs. Bush, One Lawyer's Campaign to Bring the President to Justice, Charlotte Dennett's new book, The Crash of Flight 3804, A Lost Spy, A Daughter's Quest, and The Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil, is available from the publisher at chelseagreen.com. Her blog is posted on medium.com, and she can be followed on Facebook at Charlotte Dennett. Visit her website at charlottedennett.com. That's charlottedennett.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself For 
peace.